For 28 years, this is a big day in Northeast Ohio, and we'll be talking about why on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I am here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Layla Tassi, and Laura has a new car day. She's all excited. <laughs> I do. It's been like 10 years uh, since we got a new car, and I think we finally drove our 2010 Odyssey into the ground, so... Yeah, I'll be joining the the SUV mom crew, I guess. My husband was like, no more minivans. I would have gone for another minivan, but he was like, no, we're done. It's amazing. Cars are starting to become available, I guess. And as we were discussing this morning, bicycles are too. I didn't realize that they had become available, but several of you have bought them in the past 12 months. So I guess they're freed up. Let's get to the news. It's our biggest employer, and every year it has topped the chart in an important category. What do the new U.S. News & World Report rankings say this year about Cleveland's Heart Center? And what's the bad news for the Cleveland Clinic? Laura. So the clinic still ranks first for 28 years for cardiology and heart surgery, but they dropped to fourth on the honor roll for best hospitals overall. That was down from number two in each of the last two years. That's the highest I think it's ever climbed. We're behind the Mayo Clinic, as usual. Um, but the reason it dropped is because they changed the rankings a little bit this year. They, they examined more than 30 medical and surgery services. And then they used a lot of data, including survival rates, complication rates, patient experiences, level of nursing care. And this year, uh, they were evaluated on ovarian, prostate, and uterine cancer surgery, as well as an expanded set of health equity measures that highlight what systems provide more care for low-income patients and, and other factors. And we've written several stories the last couple of years where the clinic has topped the charts for the largest fair share deficit, which I believe last fall was about $261 million, where it ranked first on the Loan Institute list of the hospitals doing the worst in community health investment. Well, we, we report every year. They rake yeah. in the money. They get mm -hmm. enormous revenue. They don't spend nearly all of it. And they're in the middle of a series of poverty-stricken neighborhoods. So the critics constantly say, come on, Cleveland Clinic, you're nonprofit. You should be spending that money to help the community thrive. And they don't. And I do wonder whether these rankings are the beginning of the decline of the clinic in national in national fair or i feel like the clinic's so concerned with ratings that they're going to up their investment so they can climb back in the charts which i hope is what happens yeah we're going to look deeper to make to, to see if this really is the reason they fell but that is one of the big changes in the rankings one of the hospitals that moved ahead of them i have never heard of before do you know anything about nyu langone i do not no, <laughs> well, that's another story we'll have to be doing. You know, the Mayo Clinic. Yeah, we know Cedar Sinai, Los Angeles. Everybody's heard of it. NYU Langone. What is that? And they're ahead of the clinic now. But right. like we said, the, the heart center uh, ranking is what they have taken pride in for a long, long time. And 28 years to be the best heart center in America. That that says something. And it's a point of pride for all of Cleveland. Absolutely. And also came out, there's a separate ranking for Ohio, for Ohio hospitals. I just wanted to make sure that we mentioned those. Ohio State's Wexner Medical Center was second behind the clinic. University Hospitals was third. Hillcrest and Fairview were fifth and sixth. And Akron General, which is a uh, clinic hospital now, right? Yeah, that's seventh. So they evaluated more than 4,500 U.S. hospitals 
in their best hospital rankings, which are a big deal. If you looked at my email inbox this morning, the number of news releases we got about people bragging about <laughs> how they did on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. obviously you want to take any kind of rankings with a dash of skepticism, but the U.S. News says their point is to help patients choose where to get treatment. Well, and U.S. News and World Report has been doing this pretty much the same way for a long number of years. The hospitals do pay very close attention to them. We get ranking emails and press releases every day about mm-hmm. everything. True. Cleveland is number one. It's all much <laughs> Right. And they're like, Ohio is ninth in this. And you're like, why are you measuring this? <laughs> because they want to be mentioned and get media attention. But anyway, it's uh, congratulations to the clinic for 28 years on the top. And shame on the Cleveland Clinic for not doing well on equity. It's today in Ohio. Why won't Medicare pay for an Alzheimer's drug that has been helping people helping people slow the progress of their condition. Lisa, this is a fascinating story we published yesterday, and it's really quite sad. I'm not really sure why the Centers for Medicare have not, they haven't really said why. They just said that uh, this drug is, let's talk about the drug first. It's called Aduhelm. It got conditional approval by the FDA last year for early stage dementia and Alzheimer's patients. It's still in phase four trials, and that usually means Phase four trials come after FDA approval, and phase four trials are kind of determining the effectiveness of the drug in a larger population. But there's controversy over whether it is effective. It's still unclear whether it slows cognitive decline, and maybe that's why Medicare is saying they've changed their rules. So their new rules limit this drug to those with mild forms of the disease in a clinical trial setting only. There is no clinical trial for Aduhelm in Ohio. The closest one is in Tennessee. There are also only three other trials nationwide in California, Florida, and New Jersey. And so they won't cover any treatment outside of Medicare-approved trials. Uh, the maker of the drug, Biogen, says that they did not get approval to approval to reimburse patients so as not to delay the phase four rollout. So the patients in the trial are covered by Biogen. So, you know, I, it's it's kind of a sticky wicket here. Alzheimer's Association Cleveland Executive Director Lindsay Walker says the lack of available trials and the fact that most people with dementia and Alzheimer's aren't diagnosed early means a very small percentage will have access to Aduhelm. Well, and the person that we were talking to in the story clearly saw a difference in her husband when he was on the drug and when he got off the drug. I mean, dramatically different. I mean, when he wasn't on the drug, he'd put on his pajamas and walk out the door like he was going to a meeting. Right, right. That 77-year-old Vance Siegel, who lives in Cincinnati, and as our, our article states, he saw major, I mean, his wife said he was like a normal person. He could do everything, and he had a sharp mind, but as soon as he went off the drug, the uh, decline was quick and noticeable. Yeah, it's really kind of sad. You wonder, it's expensive, so maybe that's what Medicare is looking at, the bottom line. If they fund this for every Alzheimer's patient in the country before it's fully vetted, maybe it won't be able to afford it. But it's uh, sad because this is... This is end of life stuff. Yeah, but again, you know, like I said, phase four clinical trials, you know, often discover things that aren't, found in the first three phases of the clinical trial process. So maybe they're just being overly cautious, but it does cost about $28,000 a year for this drug. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. 
Did the Cuyahoga County Board of Control finally authorize a contract to review the possibility of renovating the out-of-date jail? Layla, we've been back and forth on this one. Yeah, the Cuyahoga County Board of Control did end up supporting this $150,000 contract to perform an independent analysis of the conditions in the jail to help figure out whether it can be renovated or if the county should just go ahead and build this new facility that they've been just debating and debating and debating. But two members voted against it, Councilman Dale Miller and Chief of Staff Joe Nani, who was filling in for Councilwoman Nan Baker on the Board of Control on Monday. Miller believes that a jail renovation isn't workable based on information from this 2014 assessment of all the failing infrastructure in the Justice Center and the recent reports that show the current facility can't meet updated state standards for inmate care. He was basically like, you know, we already know we have to build this new facility based on these reports. Why waste this taxpayer money on this futile exercise? So, and but three of County Executive Armin Budish's administrators who were on the Board of Control and Council's budget advisor who represented Council President Purnell Jones did vote yes on having this new study completed. So it passed. Jones thinks it's a waste of money, but he didn't want to block it after County Prosecutor Mike O'Malley and Common Pleas presiding Judge Brennan Sheehan offered to pay for it out of their own budgets in recent weeks. Those two would prefer to renovate the existing jail and keep it in the Justice Center complex. So this is another chapter in this saga. Is is all this just wasting money and prolonging the inevitable building of the new facility? What do you think, Chris? I well, don't know how it's going to end. I love to hear county council members talk about wasting money when they've created $66 million in slush <laughs> well, no, funds right? for things like golf clubs. It's cute. But, <laughs> but, but the, the, the real sad thing here is everybody involved in this process got together in a steering committee. They all, they all agreed we will work together on a solution for our jail. Prosecutor, sheriff, public defender, county executive, county council, a whole room full of people, city council. And they all agreed to have this study that the county should have funded. And the county council is unilaterally trying to thwart the will of the steering committee. That's bad faith. When Once you agree to work together, you can't just pick up your board and go home. That's what they're doing. That's what the county council is doing. We don't like where this is going. Give us the dice. We're walking out of here. And that's bad. That's not collegial. That's not collaborative. And I just don't get what's going on with this council. We know County Executive Armin Budish has been incompetent in more ways than we can count and is leaving. But why is this county council also so incompetent and and non-cooperative? I don't get it. The other thing we should point out, this isn't, I don't think the goal here of anybody is to permanently renovate the jail for the next 50 years. If you talk to Mike O'Malley, what he's thinking is, are there things you can do to that jail to move it along another five or six years to when the county has money again because it's still paying off the huge debt on the convention center and the hotel? And when those debts are paid, the county would have cash on hand to build the new jail without permanently raising the sales tax, which is what the county council is hell bent on doing. You know, Caitlin Durbin is going to have a story this weekend, though, that looks at that 2014 report about the facility. And one of the things, pretty much the the premise of her story is going to be, you know, looking at at all of the the uh, upgrades and the infrastructure work that was prescribed in that report that 
did not get done. And that was the stuff that could have kept that facility, you know, in good shape for another couple decades. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they, they really kind of missed the mark at, at, at that, you know, they, if they wanted to keep that, that facility, um, in good shape, they should have made the investment almost a decade ago instead of uh, talking about it now. You know, it's a little, 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 little late for that. Yeah, you're right. I, and I, my bet is at the end of this 150,000, that will be the conclusion. But the steering committee basically said, let's make sure, you know, that's 2014. It's eight years ago. They never released the thing publicly and they're claiming all sorts of weird exemptions for security, which is preposterous. But but I, they just want to be sure. I think you're right. And look, the other, the other thing is, even if they can, should they? It, I mean, it's a hellhole. It's, it is not modern by any standard. There's no sunlight. Everything's too small. It, it's not conducive to a, a peaceful setting the way modern jails are. But $150,000 is not a lot to be sure. Because if Michael mm-hmm. O'Malley were right, that you can postpone this until there's money, that would be taxpayer relief. And we do hear from taxpayers a lot that they really would like some relief. Hmm. Well, okay. I can't wait to read the story. I know it's like, what, a 600-page report? Although, what is it when you take out all the redactions? It's probably like four pages, Yeah. Right? No, yeah, right. I mean, Caitlin points out, I think they redacted almost half of it. And... <laughs> Makes her job quicker. Made her job easier. <laughs> yeah, it's such bogus. You're listening to Today in Ohio. A quarter century after it opened, what does Canal Park mean to downtown Akron? Laura, this is your neck of the woods. You grew up down there. And Mark Bona does a delightful job putting this stadium into context. This is a great story by Mark Bona. And I love that he talked to Don Pasquale, like the longtime mayor of Akron, because I don't think we've heard from him in quotes in quite a long time. But he was a huge driver of this project which opened in 1997. And I remember that I was 17. And I don't know if I went that first summer, but I definitely went after. And it was this huge kind of turning point for downtown Akron, which obviously had office buildings and the courthouse and, you know, the Summit County headquarters and the city of Akron, but it didn't have a lot of fun. And now all around the ballpark, which is this gorgeous brick building kind of built in the style, not too different from from Jacobs Field, which is a contemporary of it, and and kind of a Fenway kind of look. Now there are bars and restaurants all over that area, and there's a real destination. It's next to the Lock 3 Park. Uh, It's not far from the towpath. And so it's really created this destination for Akron and created a a sense of pride. Until this, it was the Canton-Akron Indians, which played on the outskirts of Canton, and then I don't know if anyone remembers when they moved to Akron, they were the arrows and they had this weird furry kind of bear looking mascot. Now, of course, they're the rubber ducks which, as a nod to Akron's rubber history. Yeah. And they, they do a lot of fun things and it seems like it's a nice draw. It's easy to get to. It's easy to park at. And Mark points out that Don Quispelic can leave the stadium and go watch the fireworks yeah. that come at the end from his apartment or his condo or whatever it is nearby. Uh, Don Pusquelic was pretty proud of himself in this story. Yes, he was. He was. He comes across as like, I knew I was right. I knew it. I helped design it. I did everything. Well, remember, he went out in like less than grand terms. And so, I, you know, if he wants to be pointing back to this as his grand uh, accomplishment, then hats off to him. Because 
Canal Park was used 123 times last year. Only half were for baseball games. My daughter did the Girls on the Run program this past spring where they, they do it in a lot of Northeast Ohio schools where the kids, the girls learned to run a 5K. And that's where it happened. All the girls were in Canal Park and the stands beforehand and they finished right outside it. The Akron Marathon has often finished there in the past. Um, I finished there when I did the relay. They do movie nights. And so they really program it. And they it used to be a 9,000 seat stadium. They made it smaller to add group outings to really work to get people to come down. And I love that they're like, yeah, we're not in a baseball business. Like our people don't know the score at the end of the game. We're here to entertain <laughs> you. And they have crazy themes there. They'll do like a 90s Cavs night. They'll do Star Wars. I mean, everything is super, super programmed so that the baseball is kind of the side aspect. It's a delightful story by Mark. Check it out on Cleveland.com. What is the role of gambling kiosks in Ohio's approaching sports gambling adventure and how many businesses want them? Lisa, I don't know if I wasn't paying attention, but this one caught me by surprise. I didn't realize this element was coming. What, the kiosks? Oh, I thought that we've been talking about kiosks for a while now. But uh, yeah, their applications are open for what is called a Type C license to have a a gambling, a sports gambling kiosk in a bar, restaurant, or a bowling alley. These applications are due by August 15th to the Ohio Casino Control Commission, but the kiosks themselves will be overseen by the Ohio Lottery Commission. So right now in Ohio, a thousand businesses have been pre-approved by the Ohio Lottery Commission, 130 of those have already applied forward to the Casino Control Commission. So that's the next step. That's a $1,000 fee for that. In the Cleveland area, 27 businesses have been pre-approved, although none of them really downtown and none of them bars that I really recognized. There's like MT Glass in Cleveland Heights. That was a suburban one on the east side. And then there's one in Tremont, the Clark Bar at 1201 Clark, but not too many downtown. I was surprised. The searchable list of that for the entire state is available on cleveland.com. So to have a kiosk, you must be a currently licensed lottery retailer. You must have a D1, D2, or D5 liquor permit, which means you can serve liquor on your premises. You have to be for profit. So that X's out uh, VFW halls and and other, uh, you know, club type situations. And they will be taking applications after August 15th. But if you get it in before the 15th, you're guaranteed that you can start on January 1 when sports gambling kicks off in Ohio. So on these kiosks, you can bet on everything. If you want to place a bet on a Browns game or whatever, the kiosks are going to work. Uh, Apparently so. I mean, they're set up specifically for sports gambling. Yeah. I wonder what the, this is not my world and maybe we should do some research on it. I'm sure we'll have plenty of stories before it starts. But what would the difference be with the sports book? Like the Browns and the Cavs are fighting for, and these machines, it seems like these machines would be the simple way to do it. You don't have to travel all the way downtown. Or is the sports book place where you go and spend the night? Well, yeah, I would think a sports book. Well, and they're they're making these sports books, you know, the physical ones, really nice. You can have booze, you can have food, you can, you know, of course, you can have that at a bar and restaurant too. But I think they're really going to make the experience much more focused on the sports gambling in a sports book. It's a whole new world. We have to explore it. I'm sure there are plenty of people like me that for whom this is all new territory. It's today in Ohio. 
We talked about Laura getting a car, but you can't even get on a waiting list right now to buy the coming electric Ford F-150 pickup truck called the Lightning. So, Layla, what is the point of each Northeast Ohio dealer getting one in their showroom? Well, reporter Sean McDonald says these are mannequin models. These are trucks that can show off and and you can take a test drive in them, but they can't sell for six months. Each Ford EV certified dealer is getting one mannequin, even though they have a backlog of orders for the truck and stopped taking reservations after they topped 200,000 reservations. One dealer told Sean that these mannequins are much more about learning than selling. The experience of driving these trucks is different, and folks interested in these technologies have a lot of questions about how far they can drive and where they can charge them. So the test drives are really about introducing the trucks to both curious and skeptic potential buyers and teaching them about the technology. That particular dealer is guessing that it'll be about five years before his dealership is going to have enough lightning in stock to try really hard to sell them. So, you know, Sean did his own test drive, which I thought was a really delightful part of the story. And he included his findings in this piece. And he said the truck is surprising when you get behind the wheel. It accelerates quickly and feels lighter despite being twice the weight of the car he normally drives. Drives, And he was highlighting all the bells and whistles and I, I thought this was a really great piece, and uh, you should check it out at cleveland.com. Yeah, Sean is has just turned out to be a delightful member of the team. He joined us sometime last year, and he's done a, a whole series of stories that I'm very interested in. What was What was weird about this was when the dealer said, you know, we have to get people used to the idea that you know, they might not have enough power to charge it. And this might entail dealers visiting their home. You really shouldn't compare it to buying a car. You should compare it to getting a dog. I don't want my vehicle purchase experience to be like getting a dog. You know what? When I read that, I cringed because so when I bought a car years ago, the dealer let me take it home overnight. Right. And I thought that was really strange. And then a couple of years later, my husband, you might remember this, Chris, my husband uh, spent a couple months trying to sell cars. Remember that? Yeah. And during the training phase, he came home and he was like, guess what? They taught me a sales technique that they called the puppy dog sale. <laughs> and he said, the, the technique is when you find a particular kind of gullible buyer, you send them home with the car because Ooh. they you, you suspect that they will fall in love with this car the way they would with a puppy dog and they won't be able to give it back. They'll buy it right away. And he was like, that's what they did to you, Layla. Like, <laughs> so when I read that in the story where they were likening it to a puppy, I was like, yeah. <laughs> it was me. They're, I can't go in and take a test drive of this this car. They're going to try to <laughs> hook me again. <laughs> Laura, I guess you're not gullible. They didn't send you home with your car I, I last night. I don't think night. they would send anyone home with a car. They didn't want me taking it off the lot. like Because <laughs> there are so few cars that they're like, you know, just guarding all of them with their arms around them. I mean, there's like five cars in the whole lot and they're like, these are all spoken for. It's like, okay, please, please, please send me a car. You know, it's, it's a very different world. Well, who knew a story about a pickup truck could be so interesting. <laughs> Read it on Cleveland.com. It's today in Ohio. I'm a Jersey boy. So if I can have a legitimate reason to bring up Bruce Springsteen on this podcast, I'm going to do it. 
Why are Cleveland residents lucky that tickets for the Springsteen concert next year are not being sold by the greedy Ticketmaster? Laura. Well, because if you're going to pay that much, you can get them on the secondary market, I think. But so are you planning to go to this concert, Chris? Oh, my wife insists we're in the market to go. <laughs> we're trying to get tickets in Detroit and Columbus. And <laughs> so you are looking I mean, at these platinum seen, ticket prices. We've, we've seen Springsteen in New Jersey, in Pennsylvania, in Ireland, in Cleveland. I mean, she look, we're Jersey people. You know, he's like the patron saint in New Jersey. So what happens is the way Ticketmaster is pricing these is they have a regular price of $60 to $400, but they sell out really fast. And usually what happens is they end up on the, the secondary market, right? Somebody buys them and then resells them for amounts of balloon to thousands and thousands of dollars. Well, Ticketmaster's like, hey, if they're worth that much, we want to make that much money. So they have something called a, um, it's like a different pricing model that once it's dynamic is what they say. And so once the prices go fast enough and high enough, they just start pricing them as they would like a, as a broker would. So they people could buy them originally for that sixty to $4,000, but very quickly they ratcheted it up. And Ticketmaster said just 1.3% of tickets sold last week went for more than $1,000, but people were complaining. And the good news is in Cleveland, we don't have Ticketmaster. You have to buy it through Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse on their SeatGeek app, and those are going to be fixed costs. So if you can get it straight from the source, you will not be paying the market markup. Yeah, I, I I was choking on the cost of some of those tickets, and that, that that's not really what Springsteen represents, so I'm sure he's not happy about the way this has gone. And he's got more money and knows what to do with, so I don't think he needs more. Anyway, it's interesting. Just be giving free concerts. Exactly. Just come (laughs) and and share the love. It's today in Ohio. One more. Should. Oh, no, two more. What are the most valuable crops grown in Ohio, Lisa? This is one of those knockoff stories that we haven't published yet, but it's not what I thought. Yeah, and I I find it interesting. I'm learning about Ohio. Um, 44% of our state is prime farmland. There are 14.9 million total farm acres in Ohio. There are about 80,000 farms that average about 200 acres. And the U.S. Department of Agriculture released their report on crops and, and, and that kind of thing. So the most valuable crops in Ohio, starting with the number one, is soybeans, a $3.6 billion annual crop. Second is corn at $3.5 billion. Then number three is hay and haylage, uh, which is a big drop. It goes to $458 million. Wheat is $278 million at number four. Pumpkins, number five. million a year in pumpkins. And oats are number six at 5.8 million. But Ohio grows a huge variety of crops. And actually, I'm surprised apples aren't on this list because, I mean, you know, we grow apples all over Northeast Ohio. But we also grow apples, grapes, tobacco. I didn't know we grew tobacco in Ohio. And potatoes are among the wide variety of things grown in Ohio. Yeah, I thought corn would be first. So I was a little surprised soybeans are first. And as you drive around Ohio, you see the hay, you see the corn. I guess I don't know what soybeans look like. So maybe I'm driving past them and I just don't recognize what they They're are. Low, but I, yeah, I it's a low, low growing crop. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I was, I'm with you. I thought apples would be mm-hmm. pretty high because we are a major apple state and we, that wasn't in the top six. So again, interesting, interesting numbers. That's why I threw it on here. It's today in Ohio.
All right, let's go to our resident fairgoer, Layla Tassi. Should attendees of the Ohio State Fair feel safe getting on rides this year? And this is a serious question because we did have a fairgoer who died a few years ago because of the lack of safety in the rides. Well, I know you're joking about the resident fairgoer because I am a Cedar Point devotee and not a fairgoer at all. But hopefully, yes, this will bring some sense of safety to, to, the, to the fair. The 65 rides at this year's fair are being inspected under new protocols that are established with Tyler's Law. It was named after Tyler Gerald, an 18-year-old from Columbus, who was thrown from the fireball ride when it came apart in 2017. An investigation found excessive corrosion reduced the thickness of an interior support beam in that ride. So during a Monday media event on the midway of the state fairgrounds, Ohio officials showcase the new protocols. They require more documentation by ride owners and state inspectors who will look for signs of cracking, pitting, or more serious corrosion. And Tyler's law also requires uh, have, has requirements around the frequency of inspections and the number of inspectors. All ride owners have to apply for a yearly permit through the Ohio Department of Agriculture. The department ride inspectors will look for the documentation of the visual inspection. The documentation must be maintained for the life of the ride. If the ride's transferred to a new owner, that documentation has to be transferred as well. Ride owners have to follow prescribed mitigation strategies to fix all the problems that are identified. And ride companies have to submit locations of where rides have been when they're outside of Ohio. So hopefully... All of that will boost safety at the fair this year, which begins Wednesday and runs through August 7th. It's the first time since 2019 that the fair will have amusement rides because the pandemic canceled the fair in 2020. And in 2021, it was really just livestock events. So this is the first time that they're actually applying these new these new uh, requirements. Laura, you, you do a lot of stuff. If you were to go to this, and I know you're probably not going to, would you feel safe having your kids get on the rides? I, you know, I think everybody looks at the carnival rides after they see them driving down the interstate <laughs> and they're like, huh, right, it's a lot right. of stuff you got to put together every time. But as evidenced by the woman hit at Cedar Point last year, I don't think you ever know that anything is 100% safe, right? I, you you want to trust in the, the people who run it and, and the, the laws, but it there's always a little twinge. Yeah, the difference between Cedar Point and this, though, is like you said, they have to disassemble and reassemble right. them every time. And in in the accident a few years ago, it was metal fatigue in a part that wasn't really looked at that often. I don't know. It just it does feel like all it takes is one or two mistakes and a ride can be dangerous. At least at Cedar Point, there there's a lot of engineering. They put them together and like case a couple years ago you know a spare piece of metal got loose but it's not something that happens frequently we haven't it's done it look at those rides they they all look corroded mm-hmm. when you look at them and you're like well, <laughs> well what, they part, live outside. what part should i be worried right. about <laughs> and you know i we've only ever done where the kitty rides and like i guess you look at like those little motorcycles right. going around in a circle you're like i don't really know how i guess if you fell it's like a foot right like i've never done right. the big ones yeah the big fast oh, moving the, ones the are the ones, ones are... that would oh be scary God. Well, at least they've put in a bunch of inspections. We'll see how it goes. It's Today in Ohio, and that wraps it up for a Tuesday. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. And thank you for listening to this podcast. Mm-hmm.